Let's open our Bibles to Jude. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 16 this morning. Jude 5 through 16. Before we get into the text, let me ask you, what object or person is so important to you, so valuable to you, that you would defend it at all hazards and at any cost of personal sacrifice? This weekend, we are celebrating and giving thanks for those who have died in sacrifice for our country. That was something that was important to them, in which they decided to, to give their lives for it, to offer their lives for it. Would you be able to do that? Now, in my mind, I'd like to say I would, but it's one thing to say that you would, and it's another thing to be on the, the battlefront to have your life in danger and to consider, am I willing to give my life for that? Well, there are some things where I don't have to ask that question, right? I've considered scenarios in which if my family were in trouble, I would willingly give myself. I would willingly sacrifice my life for their sake. There are things like that for you. What would you be willing, what is so important to you that you would defend it at all hazards and at any cost of personal sacrifice. The evangelist Billy Graham died in February of this year and just released was a 16-page document, His Last Will and Testament. In it, Graham not only leaves assets to his family, he also leaves instructions. Maybe you saw this article recently. One of them I thought was very fitting as we go through the book of Jude, as we consider this command to contend for the faith. Remember remember that? Struggle for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That is, particularly the gospel message that Jesus Christ has died for sinners and risen from the dead. But also this broader understanding of the foundations of the faith. These things that we hold true that were given from the apostles on down to the saints. Well, Graham wrote this, I ask my children and grandchildren to maintain and defend at all hazard and at any cost of personal sacrifice, what? The blessed doctrine of complete atonement through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, once offered and through that alone. Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sinners defend the gospel at what cost at all hazard and any cost of personal sacrifice evidently according to the words of billy graham contending for the gospel is that important so important that we should be offer our lives for its defense but why what are the consequences if we don't contend for the gospel as Jude commands us to. In any kind of contest, I want to know what are we playing for, right? I want to know what am I winning because I'm going to win. What am I going to take home with me after I win? What do I get? And we find out the answer to this question in our passage for this morning in Jude 5 through 16. Here Jude expands upon his point in verse 4. He says, Here's why you need to contend for the gospel, because certain people have crept in unnoticed, and they are distorting the gospel. 
They are denying Jesus Christ as Master and Lord. This is why you need to defend the gospel. What is at stake in our struggle for the gospel? Here it is in one short sentence. There is a judgment. This is what's at stake. Humans don't want this to be true. We might try to ignore it with all the technology and distractions that we have, but our smartphones don't make it any less true. There is a judgment. So let's be startled into reality by this truth. There are individual souls here today, and there are people you know who are currently under the judgment of God. And if nothing changes, then they will receive His judgment on that great day, that great and final day. Let's look at our passage together, Jude 5 through 16. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the angel... When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about, also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute, execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the, the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Father, we ask that you would startle us into reality that we would live in light of the judgment, not paralyzed by fear, not pretending it isn't coming, but by patient faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus and walking as in your presence. Please use this, your holy word, to strengthen and nourish your people, And to save sinners, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, Jude uses what I call the genre of prophetic rant. If you ever wanted to rant, doesn't this sound like a rant? To describe the character of the ungodly 
and the certainty of their judgment. But he does so in order that his readers might not be led astray into following these false teachers, and therefore that they too would not go into their judgment. Do not follow their ways. In other words, recognize who the ungodly are, recognize false teachers and their ways, recognize the certainty of their judgment, do not follow them. He's warning his readers. He wants them to awaken to the reality of who these people are. For our sermon this morning, we'll, walk, we'll first walk through the text, what we would call the exposition of the text, and second, we'll consider a few truths from the passage, what doctrines we find there, what teachings we find in this scripture passage. Notice, first, there are three main sections in our passage. Verses 5 through 10 is one section. Verses 11 through 13 is another section. And verses 14 through 16 is the third section. In each section, we'll notice a similar pattern. There is an example given from history or from Scripture or from another text outside of Scripture. And then there's a result which takes place. And then finally, there's an application to Jude's present situation. So look at verses 5 through 10 and notice Jude wants to remind these believers. I want to remind you, he says. And the great majority of what I do and what pastors do is not to tell you new and exciting things, but to remind you of those things you already know or should know. So the sermon is not the time to innovate, to say new things, but to faithfully explicate, explain what the text says, what the scripture teaches us. And what Jude is reminding them of is the judgment that the ungodly will face. The whole of verses 5 through 16 is what Jude is reminding them of. The examples of ungodliness and their certain judgment. In verses 5 to 10, Jude reminds them of three examples of disobedience from the Old Testament. Notice what those are. Unbelieving Israel, rebellious angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jude says that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Have you thought about that? That seems odd, doesn't it? It doesn't make much sense in terms of our systematic theology, maybe. See, the, the son of, we know the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was active throughout all of history, right? He is God. He's eternally existent. But he didn't technically become Jesus until he was born, until the incarnation, right? Then he was named Jesus. But if you come to the Scripture, if you come to Jude, and he says it was Jesus who was working in rescuing his people out of Egypt. Well, then you don't change what Jude says. You change your own systematic theology. You, you come into line with what Jude is teaching here. And so he says, Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was active along with the Father and Spirit in the creation of the world and in the salvation of his people. As the Lord, as Moses led the people out of Israel, Jesus was there. But what happened? Most of the people who were brought up out of Israel, out of Egypt, continued in unbelief. Remember, they grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against the Lord. And as a result, the Lord destroyed them. The second example is with rebellious angels. 
I can't be sure, but it seems most likely that this is a, a reference to angels who somehow took human form and had intimate relations with human women. Perhaps a reference back to Genesis chapter 6. You see that in verse 7 here. Jude says, Sodom and Gomorrah likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So that word likewise means that Sodom and Gomorrah did just like those rebellious angels in that immorality. Sodom and Gomorrah is the third example, which we already mentioned. Jude says that they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You remember how Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. The Lord rained down sulfur and fire on them because of their ungodliness. You've probably seen off in the distance, uh, in the wilderness or something, smoke rising up, which is giving evidence of something being destroyed by fire. And this is what Abraham saw as he looked over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the smoke rising up as from a furnace. And now Jude moves to the application in verse 8. He, he then interrupts his application with another example before applying it again. But he says, in like manner, these people also. In other words, Jude's saying to his re- readers, the people who are con- you're confronting, the people who are bringing false doctrine to you, he's drawing an application. These people are just like those people, and they will receive the same sort of judgment. What sins does he charge them with? They defile the flesh. Sexual immorality. They reject authority just like the rebellious angels did. And they blaspheme the glorious ones in contrast to Michael the archangel who did not pronounce a judgment on the devil. So in summary, these people are their own authority and they are like unreasoning animals. They just do what feels right. They're controlled by their own desires and instincts. And look what drives all these He says they do these things relying on their dreams. In other words, they justify their sinfulness by what they claim to be their own private revelations from God. They dream dreams and they claim that they are from God. Beware of anyone who says and puts this up on the par with Scripture, God told me this. Be careful not to say that yourselves unless you're reading Scripture. God God told me this and here's where it says it right there. We don't have extra revelation outside of God's holy word. This is the word of God. This is what he has given us to reveal himself to us. But these false teachers were going beyond that. Now look at verses 11 through 13. We see three more examples, the result in an application. And he begins with the sort of application. These people walked in the way of Cain and Balaam and Korah. So Cain was the archetypal sinner who killed his own brother. Balaam ended up turning it around, but at first he sold himself out for money to curse his own people. And Korah led a revolt against Moses, the leader chosen by God. And he and those who followed him Perished. You remember what happened to Korah and the rebellion? The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. And Jude says, Woe to these people. See, this is uh, rant, prophetic rant. Woe to these people. 
bad things are going to come to them. Judgment is going to come to them who have walked in the way of these ungodly people. They are hidden reefs which can shipwreck you at any moment. And yet they celebrate the Lord's Supper with you, enjoy your fellowship. They are shepherds who feed themselves and starve the sheep. They're like waterless clouds. They promise nourishing rains, but they don't deliver. Like waves of the sea, Jude says, they cast up their shameful foam on the shore for everyone to see. These ungodly people, Jude says, are just like Cain and Balaam and Korah in their sinfulness, and they will have the same condemnation. There's judgment coming. Finally, consider verses 14 through 16. The example here is actually a prophecy, the prophecy of Enoch. And this isn't found in the biblical literature, but in another ancient book called First Enoch. He calls the reader to behold, look, here he comes. The Lord with ten thousands of his holy ones. To do what? Listen to the word that pops up over and over and over again. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Did you catch it? Ungodliness. Jude's application, these people are ungodly and they will receive the judgment of God. Look at the sins they're accused of. They are grumblers. Wait, grumblers? They are malcontents. They are following their own sinful desires. That's ungodly? That's, those, those will be judged for this? Loudmouthed boasters. I don't ever do that. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. If I could summarize Jude's main point, again, it would be that these ungodly people are just like the ungodly people who have gone before them and they will have the same end, namely the judgment of God. While we'd like to to avoid it at all costs, the truth of God's judgment is the reality. And there are several ways we can approach this, several ways we can react to this truth of the judgment of God. One of them would be paralyzed fear. Paralyzing fear. You could be so afraid of this end date, this deadline which is coming, that it paralyzes you to to do nothing. You could, instead of being paralyzed, you could ignore it. Any of you ever ignore an approaching deadline, you procrastinate, you put it off as long as possible. If you just get it out of your mind, well then you'll be okay, you won't have to worry about it. But does that change the deadline though? Of course not, the deadline's still coming. Instead though, what would it be like for you to walk in patient faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in His presence until that day? God's judgment can actually be very instructive to us. It can be very helpful to us. Think about that even the fact that God has explained His judgment is a gracious act. Why explain it unless there's a chance you could escape it? God could have just destroyed all of His enemies with no explanation at all. And He would have been just to have done so. 
but he is a gracious God. And we see this even in the warnings of judgment. So now for the remainder of our time, let's consider three truths about this judgment of God. Its cause, its certainty, and its comprehensiveness. Now you're probably looking at the clock, but we're going to move pretty quickly. First, the judgment of God is caused by ungodliness. Its cause, the cause of God's judgment is ungodliness. Now some might think God is just a vengeful God. He's sitting there waiting for somebody to mess up. Like an abusive parent. He's waiting for you to just mess up so that he can jump in and destroy you. We might think judgment exists just because God is mean. We might even think that we don't even particularly deserve judgment. But this truth is that the judgment of God is caused by ungodliness. No one will suffer judgment who has not first earned it by his own sin. We saw that clearly enough in the prophecy of Enoch. But notice how Jude characterizes the sin of these people as going beyond the bounds of what God has intended. They go beyond the bounds of godly morality. Jude especially points to their sexual immorality. They go go beyond the bounds of divine revelation, depending on their own, own dreams, private revelation. They go beyond the bounds of proper authority, setting themselves up as their own gods and masters. Instead of being controlled by the Spirit, they're controlled by their own desires. Instead of being guided by the Scripture and the Apostles' teaching, they are guided by their own ideas. Instead of humbly submitting To God as Lord and Master, they have become their own authority. In all of these ways, ultimately, though, what is happening is they are rejecting God. Have you realized that what you're doing when you sin, what I'm doing when I sin, I'm rejecting God? That's how ugly sin is. Your ungodly behavior isn't just a bad habit. It's not just hurting someone else. Your ungodly behavior is a rejection of God. So think about it. When you speak a word of hatred against another human being, whether it is the guy who cut you off in traffic, whether it is Donald Trump or Barack Obama or your annoying neighbor, when you speak a word of hatred against another human being, You're speaking a word against God who made them in His own image. When you choose your own morality instead of God's, you're not just falling for a harmless temptation. You are rejecting God as Master and Lord. When you decide that you know God's Word, but you have a better idea of what would be good for you in this particular instance, you are rejecting God himself kids when you disobey your parents when you make fun of that kid in class when you choose your own happiness instead of what pleases God you are rejecting your maker this is what ungodliness is all of these behaviors are ungodly And just as we saw, this ungodliness is the cause of God's judgment. Second, notice the certainty of God's judgment. 
The judgment of God is certain. Jude gives an argument from greater to lesser. Who was it who Jesus rescued out of Egypt? His own people. Those among his own people. And who was it he destroyed? The very people he rescued out of Egypt. And then they continued in disbelief. What about the angels who rebelled? They were created by God for for his glory. These glorious beings... And yet when they sinned, God did not spare them. While God's people are being kept safe until His return, these are being kept in chains in gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. The argument then is, if God did not spare these who sinned against Him, the very people He rescued out of Egypt, glorious angels who rebelled against Him, do you think He will spare these ungodly people? No, God's justice has been demonstrated throughout history that those who choose ungodliness and reject Him will suffer under His judgment. But third, God's judgment is comprehensive. Its cause is our ungodliness. It is certain judgment and it is a comprehensive judgment. We see from Enoch's prophecy who will be judged. Who was it in that passage? Who will be judged? All the ungodly. All the ungodly. Well, who does that include? If we pause our understanding of justification by faith for a moment, we'll see that that applies to all mankind. To the rich and to the poor, to the strong, to the weak, to the young, to the old, to any and all who exist, to any and all who have ever existed, every person who has ever lived on this earth has been ungodly see the judgment of God reminds us of the sinfulness of mankind but let's make it more personal it reminds us of our own sinfulness but it also reminds us of God's righteousness we as Americans hold it dear this truth that we should never judge anyone for any reason and I actually can go along with that to an extent that as Christians as long as, as we get the nuance right, we, we don't judge in a self-righteous manner looking down upon others, but we do make discernment decisions. We do make discerning choices. But I should never judge someone in self-righteousness. should never judge someone in the sense that I think I'm more deserving of God's favor than them. But what about God? God is wholly different than we are. He can actually make self-righteous judgments. He is the righteous one. He has never sinned. He's never done anything wrong. He is the measuring stick of what is right. And when I said that every person who has ever walked the earth has been ungodly, I didn't mean to include God Himself or His Son, Jesus Christ. See, The invisible and righteous God, Jesus has explained him. Jesus lived the godly life. He lived the righteous life. He showed us what it means to live for the glory of God every second of every day, every day of every month, every month of every year, day after day. He lived a godly life, the godly life you should have lived. He's the measurement of righteousness we should have attained but never had a chance to. So then, 
this, of this mass of humanity, of the 7.2 billion people who currently walk the earth, of the estimated 107 billion people who have ever lived on the earth, there are two categories of people, the ungodly and the godly. The ungodly, number about 106.9999999. The godly, just one. Just one. The one and only Son of God. Fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ. The godly one. It's an amazing grace that God saves any one of those ungodly people. It is amazing grace that God chose to save anyone. He is not obligated to do so. He is not under compulsion to save one of those 700 billion people. He would be righteous and just if he chose to save no ungodly people. They're ungodly. But thank God he is also merciful and gracious. Because mankind is utterly sinful and because God is utterly righteous, he would be just even if he saved no one. But he shows his grace in this, that he chooses to graciously save some of those ungodly. So listen, it's not owing to your good looks that you are saved. It is not owing to your good personality or your good morality or your willingness to submit to Him. Ultimately, it depends on the grace of God. It depends on God to stoop down and scoop up those who are running away from Him. It is not Him who runs or wills or works that receives the mercy of God. It is simply because of His own graciousness. If not for the grace of God, you too would follow in the ways of the ungodly. You too would follow in their condemnation. God surely will not spare the ungodly from the judgment, but in His grace, God is said to be for His people, to be with them and for them in love. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, brothers and sisters, for those of you who are in Christ, those of you who have turned from your sins and embraced Him by faith, understand this truth. God is for you. Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The reason God will spare some ungodly is because he did not spare the one who is most precious to him, his own son. See, we know how precious our lives are. We know how precious our family is, that I would give my life willingly for my wife and children. I know how precious they are. I would defend them at any hazard and at any cost of personal sacrifice. And so maybe I can get a sense of the value of what God offered us when He offered His Son. When He gave up His own Son for our justification for our sanctification, and for our salvation. So what is at stake in contending for the gospel? What is at stake as we defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints? 
the souls of individuals all around us. This is what's at stake. There is a judgment. And because there is a judgment, we must walk by faith in the God who gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. There is a judgment, but there is a God of grace who has given us salvation in no other name except Jesus Christ. In Him there is atonement. In Him there is forgiveness of sins. How then ought we to walk in light of this coming judgment? Let's pray together.